This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let us pray. Father, take these words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them and take our hearts and set them fire on fire with love for you. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today's epistle reading is one of the most beloved biblical texts. Uh, It's often read at weddings. Its prose is so exalted that it's often mistakenly called poetry or even a hymn to love. Sadly, because it's such a fine passage, it's often ripped out of its context which is interestingly in a rather long section of 1 Corinthians in which Paul is attempting to correct the Corinthians' misuse of spiritual gifts, especially speaking in tongues. Whatever its original context in Paul's letter, it's perhaps an appropriate text to read in the service on the day of a church's annual meeting. Ascension may be an exception to the rule, but in some places annual meetings bring out the worst in people. Some take it as a wonderful opportunity to be grumpy about things, often trivial things. But let's look at the text. There are three Greek words for love that were being used during the New Testament period. One was philea, which basically means friendship or brotherly love. And eros is the other, which means passionate love, often but not always, romantic and sexual attraction. Agape is the other one, and it was a fairly rare word in Paul's day. It meant, more or less, to hold someone in high esteem. But Christians, it seems, were not content with thinking about love as being merely friendship, and certainly not as being romantic love. And so Christians began to use agape as their normal word for love and they began to fill it with new meaning. And of course, this text, 1 Corinthians 13, has more references to love than any other text in the New Testament. But as I said, it occurs in a context. It occurs in a context of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. In chapter 12, Paul talks about spiritual gifts. He especially concentrates on speaking in tongues in that chapter, But he explains that speaking in tongues and any other spiritual gift is only useful if it's used for building up the one body of Christ. We all have many gifts, but we all belong to the one body. In chapter 14, Paul shifts his attention a little bit to prophecy, which he considers to be a higher gift than speaking in tongues. And so... Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is bracketed by these two fairly long sections on spiritual gifts. And you would be wise to follow Gene's example and get yourself a Bible out of the pew and have a look at 1 Corinthians 13 so we can have a look at this together. In Hebrew literature, uh, often copied by the mostly Jewish writers of the New Testament, the meaning of a text is not at the end. That's how we tend to do things. We tend to build up our arguments until we get to the end and then we give the the main point. But in Hebrew literature, the point uh, is usually in the middle. 
And the end bits, the brackets or the bookends of a text, help us to understand the middle, and the middle helps us to understand the ends. And so if we're going to understand spiritual gifts, we need to read 1 Corinthians 13. And if we read 1 Corinthians 13, we will understand spiritual gifts much better. Well, even 1 Corinthians 13 itself is structured in this kind of way. The first three verses talk about religious practices, which Paul says are nothing without love. And verses 8 to 13 talk about spiritual gifts as transient and imperfect, but that love lasts forever. And in the middle, verses 4 to 7, Paul defines what love is, primarily negatively. Uh, He does say something about what love is positively, but mostly he says what love is not. Let's look at the text. In the first verse, he talks about tongues. Corinthians liked speaking in tongues. Paul certainly has no objection to the practice whatsoever. He will go on to mention that he speaks in tongues more than they do. Uh, But he says that if we speak in tongues and we don't have love, It's not worth anything. He even says that if we speak in the tongues of angels, it's not worth anything. This is the only time this idea is mentioned in the New Testament. It does come up in one other text, a story called the Testament of Job. And in the Testament of Job, we read about his three daughters who are given the gift of speaking in angelic languages. The important thing about that passage is that the text says that speaking in angelic languages means that the Job's daughters were speaking directly to God, sending up a hymn to God in the style of hymns that angels themselves sing. Maybe Paul knew this text. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he knew the idea behind it. Maybe it was floating around in his day. But the point is, whether we're speaking in human tongues or angelic tongues, it doesn't matter. It's worthless if we don't love. See, he compares what it's like to do those things to two things. First of all, to a brass gong. Uh, Corinth was a center of a brass industry, and so the Corinthians would have understood this quite well. A brass gong was an acoustic vase used in dramatic presentations, in plays. This was pre-electronic days, obviously. So in, in theaters, they would put brass gongs around the edge of the theater, and the actors would project their voices at those gongs, and they would echo so that everyone in the theater could understand them. Paul also connects... Uh, this idea of speaking uh, without love to symbols, crashing. So this makes me nervous as a drummer, so I'll just let you know. Uh, But in, in Paul's day in Corinth, symbols were used primarily in the frenzied pagan worship of the cult of Sibele. So Paul is saying that Christian worship with, with tongues and prophecy being exercised, if it's done without love, is simply the empty echo of an actor's speech, or worse, like pagan worship. This is forceful rhetoric, 
And Paul is not treating the Corinthians gently. And actually, he doesn't get any more gentle as the text goes on. He goes on to talk about prophecy and faith. Verse 2, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but if I have not love, uh, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. The Corinthians liked not only the gift of tongues, they liked other gifts as well, and so did Paul. And prophecy was one of them. 1 Corinthians 14, he will say that prophecy is a higher gift. But here he makes it clear that even that higher gift of prophecy is meaningless unless there is love. The Corinthians liked the idea that they might have access to deep and hidden knowledge. And some seem to have considered themselves more wise than others in the Corinthian congregation. So wise that it didn't matter if they ate meat offered to idols and if some in the congregation thought that was a bit strange. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul actually says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And even earlier in the letter, Paul talks about knowledge and wisdom and rhetoric as being empty and the cross of Christ, the love of God seen in the cross of Christ being much more important, being the center of the message that Paul preached and that the Corinthians received. Paul even says that if you have enough faith to talk to a mountain and tell it to jump into the sea, as Jesus did, uh, that Even if you do that, even if you perform incredible miracles, but you don't have love, it counts for nothing. Paul goes on in the third verse. If I give away all I have, if I deliver my body so that I may boast, but have not love, I gain nothing. Jesus, of course, suggested to at least one person described uh, as a rich man in one gospel, as a young man in another, and as a ruler in a third, so we just call him the rich young ruler, that if he really wanted to enter the kingdom of God, he should take all he had and give it to the poor and follow Jesus. Of course, sadly, he didn't, the gospels tell us, because he had much riches. But others have. We can think of St. Francis of Assisi, for example, or of St. Anthony. They're famous examples of people who gave up all they had to follow Jesus. But Paul protests that even this seemingly great act of self-denial is nothing if love is not the motivation. Giving up all your possessions, even giving up your own body, your earthly life, is nothing if it is not done from love. It is just boasting, just an elaborate form of self-aggrandizement, masquerading as self-denial. So, what is love? Paul gets to the definition in verses 4 to 7. 
Now, if you're from my generation, the generation of the 60s and 70s, the, that is the 1960s and 70s, well, they both fit. Uh, you have probably been, like me, a little bit confused about this matter of love. We, that is the baby boomers, seem to have used the word love quite a lot, often in conjunction with other words like peace and flowers. We have agreed with the Beatles. All you need is love. But the Beatles themselves never seem to have attempted to move the discussion to a higher level and ask what love actually was. We basically thought of love as a feeling. Now there was one rock band from my era that pointed out there was a problem here. And you have probably never heard of them. They were from Montreal and their name was Mash McCann. They had one hit. It was called As the Years Go By. It actually got a fair bit of airplay in Canada, sold 100,000 records in Canada, 400,000 in the US, and for some reason, 400,000 in Japan. It's not the greatest bit of poetry, but it makes a point. Let me read you the lyrics for the verses. A child asks his mother, do you love me? And it really means, will you protect me? His mother answers him, I love you. And it really means you've been a good boy. At 17, his girl says, do you, love, uh, do you love me? And it really means, will you respect me? The boy answers her, I love you. And it really means, can I make love to you? At 65, his wife says, do you love me? And it really means, I'd like to hear it again. Her husband says to her, I love you. And it really means, I'll love you to the end. As I said, not the best poetry ever written. But it reveals a problem behind all the peace, love, flower stuff. What is love? Is it real? Is it just a feeling? Do we have a common understanding of the term when we use it? And I must say that since the 1960s and 70s, we haven't progressed very far. The preacher at the most recent royal wedding talked a lot about love and how wonderful it is. It sounded great, kind of, but he never really explained what he was talking about. Does love simply mean some version of being in love or having warm, gushy feelings about our parents or our children or our spouse? And what happens when the gushy feeling begins to recede a bit? Well, now Paul begins his definition. But it turns out that love is basically the antithesis of the behavior that Paul has seen in the church in Corinth. First of all, he gives two positive words. Love is patient and kind. This is what Paul elsewhere says God is like. In Romans 2 verse 4, Paul says, that God is kind, forbearing, and patient. And because of that, he doesn't wish to judge us. His kindness and patience are meant to lead us to repentance. Much of the rest of what Paul says in these verses is negative. Love is not jealous or not envious. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 3, 3. 
it seems that the Corinthians, or at least some of them, have been boastful. He says, For you are still of the flesh, for as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving according to human inclinations? Love is not envious. And love is not boastful, Paul says. He mentions boasting quite a lot in this letter. If you want a list, I can give you the list. But here is just one example from chapter 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? We have nothing to boast of. Everything we have is a gift from God. So love is not boastful. And love is not puffed up. Once again, Paul talks about this quite a bit in this letter especially in chapter 8, verse 1, where he's talking about meat offered to idols. And some in the congregation are saying, we know more than others. Paul says, you might know something, but not your knowledge just puffs you up. But love builds up. As one commentator says, in this verse, Paul deflates the Corinthian pretensions. Then Paul says, love is not arrogant or rude. Arrogant is the puffed up. Uh, Arrogant's a bit of a weak translation, not puffed up and not rude. Uh, But again, rude is a bit of a weak translation. It means shameful. The King James Version gets it better although it's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, Charity doth not behave itself unseemly, the King James Version says. Paul uses this term shameful in two other contexts. First, when he speaks of shameful sexual acts. In uh, in Romans chapter 1, in speaking of homosexual acts, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, apparently speaking of premarital sex. The other place in which Paul uses the term shameful is when he's talking about the shameful behavior going on at the Corinthian version of the Lord's Supper, which Paul declares is not really the Lord's Supper. Because at the Corinthian meal, the poor are being shamed because the rich eat all the food and get drunk while the poor receive nothing. The humiliation of the poor, Paul says, is shameful. And love, Paul says here, is not shameful. But now we get to the center of the argument, because even within the context of verses 4 to 7, there's an inside and an outside. And here is the center of Paul's list Love is not self-seeking. Love does not insist on its own way. This is the fifth description of love in a long list. Uh, In the Old Testament and in Jewish literature, the central item, as I've said, is the item which is being highlighted. 
So why does Paul put this one? Love is not self-seeking. Love does not insist on its own way. Why does he put this in the center? It's because love always wants the best for the other. There's a famous account in the Talmud, which tells about a Gentile who wanted to convert to Judaism. The man stated that he would accept Judaism only if a rabbi would teach him the entire Torah while he stood on one foot. So the first rabbi he went to was Shammai, who was insulted by this ridiculous request and threw him out of the house. The man did not give up and went to Rabbi Hillel. Hillel accepted the challenge and said, What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole Torah. The rest is the explanation. Go and study it. Love is about caring for the other, for the neighbor, wanting the best for someone else. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 24, in that verse, Paul uses this same language to talk about, again, the pressing issue, not for us, for the Corinthians, of meat offered to idols. He says, quoting the Corinthians, I have the right to do anything, you say. Then Paul says, but not everything is beneficial. You say, I have a right to do anything. Paul responds, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. In chapter 10, verse 33, at the climax of the discussion, Paul says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, so that they may be saved. But for Paul, it was Jesus himself who pointed the way. Jesus was the true example of love which needed to be followed. To the Philippians, Paul wrote this. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. And being born in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The Christian life, if it is to be loving, must be shaped like Jesus. And if it is to be shaped like Jesus, it must be shaped like a cross. Love does not seek its own way, does not seek its own interests, but the interests of others. This, of course, is the opposite of the Corinthians' own behavior. They are arrogant, puffed up, and they insisted on their own way. But true love looks like Jesus. Many have noticed that if you substitute the name of Jesus for the word love in this central section of 1 Corinthians, it seems to fit. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus is not jealous or boastful. He is not puffed up or shameful. Jesus does not insist on his own way. 
is not irritable, irritable or resentful. Well, let's get to the irritable or resentful part. Irritable means not easily angered. Not being irritable means not easily angered. Resentful means does not keep a record of wrongs. Paul doesn't say that anger is never needed. Sometimes it is. But he is saying what Jesus said. We must be ready to forgive. Remember Jesus said to do it 70 times 7. Verse 6, love does not rejoice in, well, most translations say in wrong, but rejoices in the truth. Wrong could be translated just as easily as uh, injustice. Love does not rejoice in injustice, but rejoices in the truth. Just as God is attentive to the poor, just as God's heart breaks for the widow and the orphan and the refugee, just as God opposes societal structures that give preference to the powerful, even so, our lives should reflect that kind of love, love that wants justice and hates wickedness. And so the word truth in this verse doesn't simply mean right thinking. The word truth here has a moral sense. Love rejoices in God's way of righteous living. Paul goes on, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. We shouldn't think that this verse simply means that love is gullible. The New English Bible gets the sense right. There is no limit to love's faith, love's hope, love's endurance. Well, having defined love and having put uh, wanting the best for others at the center of his definition, Paul then says in verses 8 to 13 that love does not fall. Everything else that the Corinthians hold dear, speaking in tongues, special spiritual knowledge, prophecy, miracles, all these things are temporary. These things are good. Paul affirms them. They're gifts. But they are signs of something better to come. When that better, Paul says, or actually when he says, when that perfect thing comes, these temporary signs will be overtaken the imperfect will be surpassed by the perfect. Paul gives two examples. He says, once I was a child and I thought and I spoke and I acted like a child. But now I'm an adult, so I have to look at the world differently. He's not very subtle, actually. He's saying that the Corinthians are being childish. The second example is of a mirror now, we need to remember that mirrors in Paul's day were made out of metal, brass. They were manufactured in Corinth, again. And they gave an imperfect and distorted reflection of things. The Corinthians knew this, of course. Paul's point, however, is not that we will see ourselves clearly one day. Paul says, now we see in a mirror dimly, 
but one day we will see face to face. But he's, he's alluding to the Old Testament again. This is not just a matter of seeing our own face in a mirror better. Listen to what it says in the book of Numbers. Here God is speaking about Moses. Hear my words, God says, when there are prophets among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. Not so with my servant Moses. He is entrusted with all my house. With him, I speak face to face. Clearly not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. One day, Paul says, we will have direct apprehension of God. One day we will not need spiritual gifts. One day we will not need miracles or signs. One day we will live in the consummation of God's kingdom, in the new heaven and the new earth, and we will see God face to face. And on that day, even faith and hope will not be needed because faith trusts for what is not seen. And hope looks forward to what is not yet received. But when we see God face to face, what we will see is the face of love. As First John tells us, God is love. Now, neither the Corinthians nor us are living the life that Paul wants us all to aspire to. We are not patient. We are not kind. We are jealous and boastful. We are sometimes arrogant and shameful. But the God that we will see face to face one day loves us. and has sent us Jesus. We may not see everything in submission to him, but we see Jesus, and one day we will see him face to face. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.